This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. Church. I am Pastor John, and I have the honor of serving CRC as lead pastor, and it's a joy, it's an honor, it's a privilege to worship with you all this morning. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about what is most infamously known as the fall, or the fall of mankind. It's when humanity first disobeyed their creator, thus fracturing the entire universe as a result, and certainly fracturing our vertical relationship with God as well as our horizontal relationship with God. And it's clear that from that moment, the way in which you would assume God would handle his disobedient creation whom he has done nothing but create love, freely give to and care for. It's shocking the way in which God handles his fallen creation. And perhaps you've never caught it. In Genesis 3, we see that humankind sins by disobeying God and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were deceived by the enemy. And as the man and woman now hear from the Lord walking towards them in the cool of the garden, Genesis 3 depicts, they willingly choose to hide themselves. How many of us know this morning that you can't hide from God, right? He's all-knowing. When Sienna was three, four years old, we'd often play hide and seek, and it's interesting how small children assume you can't see them when they're hiding, when they're really just out in the middle with their head down or under a cover and you can see the frame of their body. It it was really an interesting season for me as a hide and go seek fan, having hide-and-go-seek memories with my daughter. I imagine that a little bit here in Genesis 3 when God's creation, Adam and Eve, hide from God their Father as he is walking towards them in the cool of the day. And as God approaches them, this is the question I want us to focus on in our introduction this morning as we're going to be diving back into John 1. As God approaches them, he asks them a question. 
where are you? Where are you? It's kind of a funny question because he's God and God knows everything. Humanity is hiding because for the first time, they are aware of their nakedness. And, and when you hear that word nakedness, don't think simply lack of clothing. But that word in the original language has connotations that deal more with guilt and shame. So all of a sudden they are aware of their nakedness. They feel this immense sense for the very first time of guilt and shame. This idea of what have we done? Or even more personally, what have I done? Have you ever felt that in the midst of a sinful act? What have I done? Deep in your conscience. And they're feeling that and they're hiding from their creator. And their creator says, where are you? They're dealt with for the first time with this deep sense of guilt and shame. And so we see in Genesis 3, the rebellion of creation against their benevolent creator. And shockingly, the heavenly father doesn't do what perhaps if, if you're if you're here this morning and you had the privilege of growing up with a dad at home, doesn't do what a lot of dads do when their wife calls them and says, hey, I need you to deal with your child when you get home. You, you maybe know how that, how that was as a kid, right? When, when mom calls dad and says, hey, you know, I dealt with you a little bit, but just just wait till your dad gets home, right? The, the father here does not deal with his sinful creation the way in which perhaps your father would have dealt with you after disobeying your mother. What happens? The pattern that we see from the father is one of grace. Let me walk through it. He asks, where are you? They essentially reply they hid due to their nakedness, their guilt and shame. Then he says, well, who told you you were naked? Did, did you eat from the tree that I told you and commanded you not to eat from? Essentially, they say, yes, we did. Then he shares with them the cosmic consequences of their cosmic rebellion. And then he graciously clothes them. He says, those fig leaves aren't going to do. And, and he clothes his creation. And what we see there early in creation is what we see here in the Gospel of John. God initiating and moving toward his people despite their rebellion. He yearns for a right relationship with his creation. And this is what we're going to see 
with Jesus in John chapter one, this yearning for a right relationship, for a people to come back into community with God, the Father, and Jesus is going to be the person who can institute that, and he is the only person who can institute that. So let's continue to read in John chapter one. If you have a Bible, we'll be on page 860 in John 1, a blue hardback Bible. There should be one in front of you underneath somewhere. We'll be reading verses 35 through 42, and then we'll read the other half of John 1. Secondly, I've entitled this message, The One Who Calls. The Word of God reads like this. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. This is speaking of John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, or perhaps you're in the English Standard Version, I believe it would say, behold, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who had heard what John had said, that, that proclamation from John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is Jesus doing here in John 1? He's doing what he does best. And as the synoptic gospel writers depict in Matthew and Luke, he is doing what he does best. He is seeking and saving the lost. And as he is walking by the older, older cousin, rather, of Jesus, John the Baptist, John the baptizer, sees his younger cousin, and he declares, behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. What I'm gonna do this morning with this text is, is something, it's, it's interesting. I didn't expect to do it with the text early on in the week when I was studying it and preparing and then something came to me Friday that said, we're going to make this extremely practical. And, and here's what you get today, just so you're aware. You're gonna get a shorter sermon. Oh, 
Feels good, doesn't it? Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> You're going to get a shorter sermon, and, but it's going to be extremely practical. So if you were here last week, first half of John 1, uh, read that, studied that, had about, if you looked at my sermon manuscript, around 12 footnotes, working with around six to seven different scholars, and it was one of those very heady messages. The Lord started directing me Friday um, to really change the pace of this message. And so you're going to get really ground level, basic stuff. But please do not allow this to just, to just go in one ear and out the other. Because there is something here for us. And I want you to grasp it. So what we're going to look at is the way in which God uses people in this short transcript that we just read according to the Gospel of John, the way in which he uses people, the variety of people that he uses, and one of the things we're going to see here, and it's our first point, is God uses preachers. Believe it or not, God uses preachers. I'm using a broad term here when I use the term preachers, this could be synonymous with pastors, teachers, evangelists, those who proclaim a message. God uses them. John the Baptist had been a key leader in the movement of God up until this point. He's preaching. He's drawing great crowds of people. And he's preaching quite a simple message, and he's baptizing people. We learned from the synoptics that his baptism was one of repentance and he's baptizing droves of people. And he is so influential that some of the influential ones of his day are gathering to hear from this wild preacher who preached a message that was simple. To put it in a few words, as we read through all four of the Gospels, you'll see that the message of John the Baptist was, in short, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And here in John chapter 1, we see him preaching two messages. The second one is what we just read, but the first one is just three or four verses behind it. It's simply, behold, the Lamb of God. And the first time he adds, who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist will later go on to, to share that he, he's not worthy even to unstrap the sandal of his younger cousin, his Savior, Jesus, the Lamb of God. He, he also adds in, in his teachings that we see throughout the Gospels that we are to produce fruit that lines up with repentance or produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He's a straight shooter. He's a preacher. He's an evangelist. And now his message, as he sees his younger cousin walking by and he positions himself with at least a couple of his disciples with him is, look, the Lamb of God. 
And earlier in verse 29, again, it was, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And two people who were within an earshot of that proclamation from John the Baptist start following Jesus. One of them, we know, was definitely Andrew. We'll know that from further explanation in verses to come. And and the other one, we're not exactly sure of. We can assume maybe it was Philip from verse 43, um, or some commentators even suggest perhaps it was John, the author of this gospel. We're not sure, but there were two people, two of his followers, who immediately then start following Jesus, two of John the baptizer's followers. Here's what Paul says in Romans 10, 14, and 15. He says, how then... Can they call on the one they have not believed in? And and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? A, A question that I have this morning is, How many of you are here today can say scales have fallen off your spiritual eyes, your heart has changed due to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is the way in which God used the preaching of the word to bring you to his son Jesus. How many here, by show of hands, can say, that's how I came to faith in Jesus, through the preaching of the gospel? Maybe it was 40 years ago, 50 years ago, or 60. How many by show of hands? God uses the preaching of his word in fallen preachers, fallen evangelists, teachers. God's spirit is at work through the preaching of his word. We see it throughout the word of God. I know for me personally, it was something about the preaching of God's word. When I was a 13-year-old boy, a 14-year-old boy, I was 12 years old and would wander on a bus filled with people I did not know, and my mom allowed it. Uh, it was a Baptist church bus. I don't know, I don't know, times were different, I guess, 23 years ago or so, but I just go on this bus with a bunch of people I didn't know, some were adults and a bunch were kids, and I would go to hear preaching from the Bible. And there was something about the preaching of God's word that drew me closer to God. And it caused me to think and to pray and to discern what I just heard. I was talking to a member here of our church at the senior adult group outing Friday night. Uh, They did not check ID, so I was able to slide into that outing. And she mentioned she came to faith because some evangelistic group so many decades ago knocked on her door and that led her to faith. Like how many, when I heard that story, I was like, I didn't even know God used that. Like some random person knocked on your door and you just came to, yes, pastor. That's how I came to faith. And I've been saved and changed and transformed ever since. God uses it then or used it then, and I'm sure he's still using it today in several other forms of preaching, teaching, and or evangelism. This is also why a simple come with me to church is a profound invitation that you can give someone you love. 
Come with me to church. It's a phenomenal way to reach out to someone who you love and who you want to see come to Jesus. And I have a friend in second service, Jeremy Annan, who is amazing at this. The guy's just, he just brings droves of people to church. He's constantly inviting people. He says, man, I was just hanging out with a person the other day. I was like, well, when are you coming to church with me? It's just a, it's a gift of his. He just loves to invite people to church. A simple invite to church can absolutely be a game changer because it puts them within an environment where the word of God is going to be taught. And God uses that. Next, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. God uses family. God uses family. Let me read verses 40 through 42 again. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who, who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And I love these words. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him we have found the Messiah that is the Christ and he brought him to Jesus like physically brought him to Jesus Andrew's first response after meeting Jesus is I have to tell my brother about this Messiah this one who the great evangelist John the baptizer declared he is the Lamb of God. He is the one that we have been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament and the teachings of Moses. Here he is. The Lamb of God is here. I have to tell my brother. What we get a glimpse of in this passage is the way families are meant to be together beholding the Lamb of God. The greatest culture that we can produce within our families is a culture, I think, of beholding the Lamb of God. So often, we have one, one child, we have our daughter Sienna, seven years old. So often, it can be easy to just get focused on behavioral modification. And as parents or grandparents, you can even, you can take that so to heart when your child or your children are simply not behaving the way in which you brought them up to behave. And so we just wanna fix the behavior when I think what would be a far better discipleship strategy would be to rather cultivate a culture of beholding the Lamb of God together. Like, let's get together and behold the Lamb of God. On Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays, we look at the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And it's just, when, when the instruction came from God, it, it's literally, it's just a bunch of beholding. Behold, behold, behold. Do this, do that. Do this, and it all turns to beholding God through his word. And so instead of simply having these knee-jerky reactions, which I can with a seven-year-old, 
of just like, oh, man, you know you ain't been taught that, girl. Instead of that, to get deeper into her heart and to hear her and to walk with her and to, and to say, hey, let's pray about this thing. Let's behold God together. Have we cultivated a culture of beholding the Lamb of God in our homes? Perhaps you're empty nesters. I know we got a lot of y'all here. Husbands and wives. Do we have a culture within our homes of beholding the Lamb of God together? Perhaps you have extended family, those who are non-Christians. They don't live with you. Have you pursued them like Andrew pursued his brother Peter, Simon Peter? Have you reached out to them and said, hey, do you want to come to church with us this Christmas? We would love to have you. How many of you are in the faith today because a family member, perhaps a mother or father, perhaps extended family, shared Jesus with you. And you are here today. How many by show of hands are here because a family member shared Jesus with you? Several. God uses family. He used Andrew to bring Simon Peter to Jesus. I have a friend. Oh, I don't have my phone up there, up here with me. Can you grab that for me? I have a friend, Nate, several months. Thanks, Greg. I have a friend, Nate, who sent me a text at 6 a.m. a few months ago. And he was so excited. And I'm so grateful he thought of me because I got to rejoice with him. But he sent me this text. And he said, Molly asked his daughter, Molly, I think she's about 10 years old. Molly asked Jesus to come into her heart last night. Nicole and I got to walk her through, that's his wife, walk her through some verses last night in her room to make sure she understood it. And it was very clear to me that it was the Holy Spirit just grabbing her heart in that moment. She asked to pray last night before bed, and I was like, sure, let's do it. And then she was like, Jesus, please accept me. I want to follow you. And then she started sobbing. This is a, this is a grown man, 36-year-old friend of mine, Nate, who shared that with me at 6 a.m. because he couldn't be more excited for his daughter who came to Jesus last night. God uses family. God uses family. And perhaps, so I, I can feel the room, perhaps you're here today and you're a parent, maybe you're an empty nester, maybe your kids are up in high school, and you feel boy, I've done a pretty crummy job at cultivating this type of relationship. And now I'm here and I'm reading it, and I'm like, man, I wish I could go back 10 years, 12 years. 
God still wants to use you. God still wants to use you. Do you realize what a phone call, perhaps you got a, a child who's an adult now, or they're in college, or perhaps in high school. Do, do you realize what a phone call would do to say, hey, I'm looking at the Word of God, and I'm examining it together with my church family, and I realize um, we didn't do the best job of beholding God together. And I'm really moved now, and I just want to say I love you, and will, will you forgive me? I can't imagine how much ministry, how many years of ministry that could be caught up with in one phone call with the Spirit of God moving you to say that to your children or child. He can do it. And he's not done with you yet. And perhaps you're, you're a widow here or a widower and you're like, I don't have much family. Welcome home. Welcome home. We are part of your family. I pray that CRC would be a part of your extended family. Let's read the rest of John 1 together and go to our final point. John 1, 43 through 51. This is just continuing. Jesus is just walking by here. The next day, Jesus decided, so it's the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Here's Nathanael's response. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. That's like Conklin. Ravenna, come and see, said Philip, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. If you've ever seen The Chosen, this is depicted in like season two, I think. And it's a powerful, powerful um, depiction with some artistic liberties being used. Verse 49, then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Our last point today is God uses relationships. Now, now I am taking some textual liberties here. We're not told that 
Philip was friends with Nathaniel. We're, we're not really told. But one can assume that Philip obviously had some sort of relationship with Nathaniel in the same home area prior to this moment. It, it was just like the one guy that came to his mind was like, we got to go get Nathaniel. We got, I got to show Nathaniel. Nathaniel also seems to be a bit of a theological nerd because the way in which Philip approaches him is, we found the one, you know the Old Testament scriptures. You know the book of Moses. You know the prophets. We found the one who all of those are prophesying to, are pointing to. We found him. And he's from Nazareth. Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Yeah, come and see. And Philip uses those three simple words in response to Nathaniel's skepticism. Do you have any friends or people in relationship with you, coworkers, friends who are skeptics? Here's a great lesson from Philip. His three words spoke volumes. Come and see. You got a skeptic in your life? Hey man, just come and check it out. Just come and see. Like, I'll, I'll let God do the impossible. I can't crack that heart of stone of yours, but I, I know who can because he cracked mine. C come and see. Nathaniel seems to be a, a brother again who is naturally skeptical, a bit of a theologian type by the way in which Philip approached him, immediately went to the scriptures to say that this is the one whom the scriptures are pointing towards. And Jesus, I love this about Jesus, Jesus meets Nathaniel right where he is at. He meets him right where he is at. And there's obviously something profound that happened under that tree that Jesus saw. When he saw Nathaniel under the, was it fig tree, correct? When he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, there must have been a profound moment in Nathaniel's life that Jesus was able to speak into in that moment. Jesus meets Nathaniel right where he is at. And it's beautiful when you look at the variety of ways in which God uses his followers to engage with the Messiah. With Nathaniel, there certainly seems to be something personal that happened and Jesus meets him in that personal moment or after that personal moment. And Jesus saw Nathaniel in that moment and he meets him right where he's at. Do you know someone like that? who has gone through devastation, who has gone through heartache in this season, or perhaps you're the person. Jesus is coming by and he's inviting them to follow him or he's inviting you to follow him, but there are deep wounds and hurt. And you are praying for that person or perhaps you are that person and you are praying that Christ would personally show up in a profound way that he would make himself known to someone you love or perhaps, again, that someone is you. 
I want to end our time together asking the question that God asked fallen humanity in the garden. Where are you? Where, where are you with all of this? Perhaps you're a skeptic and God is pursuing you. You're here because someone said, come and see. Maybe you have deep wounds and you are fearful to allow anyone, let alone a God you cannot see, into part of your life or into your life. Or perhaps you are here and you are all in, but you simply need to be reminded whether you are called to proclaim the good news through the gift of teaching that God has given you or invite a member of your family to meet the Savior you worship or a friend that you have been disconnected from and God is calling you to reconnect with them and say, hey, come and see. Wherever you're at, I know this for a fact, God longs to meet you there wherever that is. God is pursuing you and he is initiating a relationship with you because he created you and he loves you. Despite all of your shortcomings, his love is greater than that. And if you come to him, he loves you enough to not keep you where you are. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your pursuit, that you are an initiating God who pursues his people fervently. You don't leave us where we are at, but you rather pursue us. And in most instances, you use people to pursue us first and draw us to you, but essentially, at the end of the day, it's still your spirit and the effectual work of salvation that has to happen through your spirit for anything of eternal matters to come about. So Father, we thank you as your people that we get to be invited into this joy, into this mission. And Father, as we consider the gift of preaching or teaching or proclaiming the word of God, we ask, is, is that something we should be leaning into? In some way, sense, or form, we're all called to be preachers. We're all called to be proclaimers. We're all called to herald the message of the gospel. Perhaps you're calling us and leaning on us to do that in our workplaces or in our friend groups. And Father, for, for those of us who are blessed to have families, how can we best behold the Lamb of God as a culture within our families. And Father, we, we wanna be good friends, we wanna have good relationships, and we wanna have such relationships where we encourage people to come and see. Come and see what Jesus has done. Come and see who Jesus is. He'll do the heavy lifting. I get to be a part of a relationship with him and invite people to him. Father, thank you that you could have done all of this alone but you have chosen to invite us in to a loving relationship and use us. Father, we desperately wanna be used and we love you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.
Thank you, Pastor. I invite you to stand now. We're going to close with a singing of 128, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. <laughs> 